This morning, I'm concluding a short two-part series entitled, Possessing Your Inheritance. And uh, the question that I'm asking today is, why are we waiting? Why are we waiting? Why aren't we rising up to possess what God has for us and that it's time now to do that? Because that's the only way that we're going to make a difference in our needy world. Joshua 18, verses 1 to 3, I'm reading from the New Living Translation. Now that the land was under Israelite control, the entire community of Israel gathered at Shiloh and set up the tabernacle. But there remained seven tribes who had not yet been allotted their grants of land. Then Joshua asked them, how long are you going to wait before taking possession of the remaining land the Lord, the God of your ancestors, has given to you? How long are you going to wait before you make a difference? I don't know if you've heard of the story of the little boy throwing starfish back into the sea. It's called the starfish story. It has a place in almost every motivational, inspirational speaker from the 1980s onwards. And the story kind of goes like this in the way it's been watered down through the motivational speakers. A boy's walking on a beach and an old man sees him throwing starfish back into the sea. The old man comes and says, what are you doing? I'm saving the lives of these starfish. And the whole of the, of the, of the, sea, uh, whole of the, uh, of the beach is, is completely covered in starfish. And, and the man says, you know, you're wasting your time. You can't save all of them. And he says, well, at least I can save this one. It goes something like that. Well, I'm interested in that story because it is most often used at this point in a message when the speaker is wanting you to make a difference and to know that you can make a difference. But I was interested in where this story came from came from a man called Lauren Easley, and uh, he was an American anthropologist, an educator, philosopher, natural science writer, and published many books on the history of naturalism and history of evolution and so on. In one of his books entitled The Star Throw, actually it was an essay to begin with, these are the actual words that give, gave rise to that story. Here he goes. Once on ancient earth, there was a human boy walking along a beach. There had just been a storm and the starfish had been scattered along the sands. The boy knew the fish would die, so he began to fling the fish into the sea. But every time he threw a starfish, another one would wash ashore. An old earth man happened along and saw what the child was doing. He called out, Boy, what are you doing? Saving the starfish, replied the boy. But your attempts are useless, child. Every time you save one, another one returns, often the same one. You can't save them all, so why bother trying? What does it matter anyway? Called the old man. The boy thought about this for a while. Starfish in his hand, he answered. Well, it matters to this one and flung the starfish back into the welcoming sea. Interesting. Good story. It's going to be a little deeper than you can make a difference. 
Because when we see where that man in his essay was coming from, I think it is more important than just a simple motivational story that you can make a difference. But the fact is, you can make a difference. You have been called to make a difference. You are on an adventure, an action adventure. You are a romantic hero in the story of God, for he has given you, every single one of you, a mission. It's a great mission. Back in Joshua's day, they were also involved in a mission. And uh, here it goes, the full story is something like this. God's people spent many years in Egypt. They were slaves in Egypt, and that's a picture of what your life and my life is apart from Christ. We are in the bondage under the condemnation of slavery, and we need a deliverer. And God knew that his people in that day also needed a deliverer. And he raised up Moses and said, Moses, I'm sending you to Pharaoh to set my people free. And after tremendous manifestations of the power of God in which God visited Egypt with various plagues until Pharaoh was finally willing to let God's people go. And that final plague, the plague of the firstborn, which is the very picture of our salvation. If you remember it, and the Passover, the institution of the Passover. Take a lamb, a lamb for a household, sacrifice it, eat it, but before you do that, spread the blood on the doorposts and lintels. And God said, when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and the plague of death and condemnation won't hit you. And that was a picture in the Old Testament of what it means to be saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. When Jesus died on the cross, he paid the price for our sin, and he is the one who turns God's wrath away concerning our sin. Not only does it impact God in that way, when we by faith apply it to our lives, but the blood of Jesus also washes and cleanses us internally. That's a marvelous picture of salvation, their deliverance from Egypt. But that was not the whole story. God said, I'm not just come to take you out of Egypt, I'm going to lead you into something. I'm going to lead you to a land, the land of Canaan. And, and it says over and over again in those passages, relevant passages in the Old Testament, it's a land flowing with milk and honey. And Joshua's task was to take them in to their inheritance. It all went very well in the first little while. Joshua led them successfully in various battles, a coalition of kings from the south of Canaan who came up against them, defeated by Joshua. A second coalition of kings in the north, defeated by Joshua, until at this particular point, the whole land had been subdued in a very real sense. And Joshua could say, all God's promises have been fulfilled. They're all yours. But something had gone wrong. The people had settled down and, and gone for half measures and God had to stir Joshua up to say, call everybody together, I've got something important to say. And this is what he said through Joshua. Why are you waiting? How long will you wait until you rise up and take possession of the land? And so we have way, way back something that took place 1,400 years before Christ and then 40 years later, the conquest of the land. 
And now we are poised at this very important moment where God says to his people, there is much land that is yet to be possessed. Don't settle down and enjoy the level of what you have. Rise up to take hold of everything that I have for you. I can't think of a more relevant word to the church of Jesus Christ in our nation. When we look back on all that has been accomplished through the gospel, down through the years, these students who are visiting Britain at the moment, looking at various key places in which God broke in in history through the gospel and the nation was turned back from darkness time and time again. But in our generation, it seems that we have got a bit complacent resting on the achievements of others rather than rising up to take what God has for us in our generation. And as the star thrower shows us, you can make a difference. Mother Teresa, that great woman of Calcutta who looked after so many generations of, of, of street kids and orphans and, and would always exhort people saying, if you can't feed a hundred just feed one person. And you have no idea of the ripple effect, the multiplication effect, when you do what is right, at least where you can, at least with one person, making an impact. That's our calling. A number of years ago, I forget whether it was the first or second intifada uprising in the land of Israel, many of us Elam ministers, together with ministers from other denominations, were invited, courtesy of the Israeli government, to go to the land of Israel, all expenses paid, finest hotels, and the best of treatment. And their motivation was to say, come and look at the land. See how good it is. It's peaceful now. So the tourists can return. And they hoped that we would lead hordes of tourists uh, into the into the land of Israel, as of course many church groups do, and we have done on various occasions. What was interesting to me was that the particular tour group and the tour company that was hosting my uh, uh, little group was called the Footsteps of Jesus Tour. And the idea was that we would trace the footsteps of Jesus across the Holy Land and, and reminisce on this and get inspired, and I'm sure, sure we were. But I was curious about these footsteps of Jesus, seeing if I could find any imprint, any impact left by Jesus and his physical life on this earth. I tell you, it was rather difficult, in fact, impossible, and never more impossible than trying to find his footprints on the Sea of Galilee, as we were encouraged to do. But if you measure the life and ministry of Jesus from what traces might remain from his physical imprint all those years ago, you will find very little. But when you take a step back and look at the impact of the life of Christ upon the whole of civilization, the whole of the Christian church and community, and even beyond that, it is totally staggering. Imagine what the world would be if Jesus had never come. There would be no redemption, no salvation, no relationship with God and, and none of the glorious spin-offs of the gospel which have been in many nations in the West the foundation of our society because the gospel makes a difference. Everything good comes from the gospel and indeed 
God marshals all of the events of history, building up, coming to Christ, and then even from then onwards, building up to this great climax of the triumph of the gospel over the nations of the world. So you and I are called to be part of what has been called the greatest story ever told, the greatest story that could ever be told. And it's that great story which has been told which also begins to unfold in your life to touch the multitudes around you. Some people say, well, it's not true. We can't really, really make a difference. What, what can I do? And a little inspiring story of a boy throwing starfish back into the ocean leaves no mark on you. It's a motivational speech. It's a good story. You can talk about the ripple effect, a stone in a pond. You can talk about the multiplication effect. We bring that strategy into the very way we do church. Because our job, people, is to grow leaders and to build groups of people like Jesus did. We call it the principle of 12. It's not that we are addicted to the literal use of that number, but it's the principle of winning people to Christ, drawing them together, impacting their lives, discipling them, and helping them go on to do the same and build a kind of generation of people who know and love Jesus in an ever-expanding circle of influence. But just think for a moment how powerful that principle is. Think about this. As you sit here today, I'm sure you along with me could cite names, places, people, circumstances in which it all took place when people had a powerful impact upon our lives. For me, when I go back to being a young teenager in Australia, a man stood in, our maths teacher, stood in for the missing teacher for our normal dose of statutory weekly religious education. And it was Mr. Dobson. When he walked through the door, we thought, oh my, 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 another 40 minutes of maths. But not so. Mr. Dobson had volunteered to speak to us about the gospel. And he was a bit of a crazy man. And I just, just remember clearly how he presented Christ in a way that was stupefying. And something in me stirred and moved, and perhaps that was the beginning of my own quest, my own search for God. I owe who I am today because a man lit a fuse, a slow burning fuse, to be sure, impacted my life. I think of the various impact that people have made upon me in, in ministry, but also in life. You think about all the people that may have had an impact on your life. Maybe they were your school teachers, your parents. Maybe they're your employees, fellow employees, co-workers, bosses, vendors, customers, friends, family. Lots and lots of people. But they're all part of the equation. And in some way or another, they have influenced you and have influenced you without even necessarily you knowing it and influenced dozens of other people. 
Imagine the influence we could be, we could achieve if we became the church community, the church society that God calls us to be. Now, there are many examples of one person having a major, major impact, not just upon individual lives, but sometimes whole groups of people and nations. And here on the screen are are a number of them. I don't vouch for any single one of them, maybe one or two I would vouch for, but these people are people who have influenced in some way. We can see some of those names, very, very prominent, Benjamin Franklin, Gandhi. We have also John Lewis, Well, I guess that he influenced in in some way. Other names you'd expect to be there, Isaac Newton, Martin Luther King. And you look at these people and you say, I'm inspired as to the impact that one person can make. But when we look closely, they were not alone. The truth is, every one of these people had something special about those who gathered around them. One person can make a difference, but it is necessary to do it together. So my first call for you today is don't go it alone. Don't go it alone. We're never called to go it alone. When Joshua said to the tribes, why are you waiting? Rise up and do something about it. The first thing they had to do was to allot the land. The land was there. They had, in a a way, taken possession of it. They were settled there. But Joshua says, you've got to go and take this new territory. And we begin by mapping it out. And that was done under the hand of God. God was giving them where they should go. and, And they were to do it together. Yes, we had to rise up as individuals, but... We had to do it together. That would have been their story. These people who make impact on their environment, impact upon their circle of friends, they can never do it alone. And you in the body of Christ never need do it alone. We are together. If we're going to break through in our society, we have to show them a society that is an alternative society. Not just individual people, who happen to have a personal view and maybe are good examples of what it means to shine for Jesus, you in your little corner and me in mine. No, when we join together and show them community, it takes community to reach community. It takes a society to reach society. We have to become the society of God who are sharing together and your weaknesses can be made up by somebody else's strength and vice versa. Don't go it alone. You need to do it together. But if you say, all right, I I, I never intended to go it alone. In fact, I was intending to leave it to other people. This is the other extreme. People who try to do everything themselves and other people who leave everything to anybody else. That's not how we're called to do it. Yes, we are to do it together, but we don't leave it to others. I can imagine way back in the day, What was going through some of those people's minds? What might have been the answer to the question? Why are you waiting so long? Well, that's a strange question, Joshua. We're waiting for you. You are God's man. You are the great leader. 
who followed on from Moses, and we trust you. What amazing job you've done so far. You've delivered this into our hands, it's amazing. So now you are gonna lead us into the full possession of the land. And Joshua said, no, I've done my job. I've done my job. I think many Christians today are looking in a wrong way for their leaders to do everything for them. The church of Jesus Christ isn't kind of layered in some kind of hierarchical level of anointing and calling. So we have on, you know, at the front, on the pedestal, mighty men of God, men and women of God, mighty men of God, power for the hour, men. These people are so anointed, these women are so powerful, and these are the superstar Christians, and we'll give them superstar status very, very quickly. Why? Because we say, good, now we can sit back and do nothing. Reinhard Bonke single-handedly is going to evangelize the whole of Africa. Billy Graham and his successors are going to take care of the rest of the world. Colin Dye is <laughs> going to do the job. For, no, 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 my job's done, my friends. My job as a leader is done. When I have broken through, given, made some significant battles and mapped it out, and the whole thing is, it's about you rising up to do what God has called you to do. We are the body of Christ, and every single one of us is called to inherit what Jesus has given to us to inherit. What is his inheritance? Truly speaking, the inheritance that is ours is the calling that he has given us. Matthew 28, go and make disciples of all nations. Mark 16, preach the gospel to the whole of creation. Why is it so significant? Jesus is giving us the opportunity to share in the outworking of the fruits of the cross so that he may look upon the travail of his soul and be satisfied. Wonderful passage in Isaiah chapter 53 where the prophet prophesies of Messiah, one who had come not, first of all, with all the glory associated with an earthly king, not even all the glory associated with a heavenly king, God said Messiah would come, despised and rejected. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And he would be cut off from the land of the living. And the poignant question that comes in that prophetic part of the scripture. That poetic prophecy. Who shall declare his generation? Big question. Filled with pathos. Who is going to declare his generation? And then the answer comes, by his knowledge, he would justify many and he will look upon the suffering that he endured and see its fruit and be satisfied. That's his inheritance, you and me. And the vast numbers of people out there who are yet to believe in Christ. That's our calling. That's our inheritance. And we share it with him. It's remarkable, is it not, that we're called to be part of the greatest story ever told. So it begins with gospel proclamation. It moves 
into gospel engagement. Very important. It's not enough just to preach. We have to engage. And in a way, the story of the star thrower helps us understand something. I don't know if you picked up when I was reading Lauren Easley's story in the way that he wrote it. Something mystical. This man's a scientist. There's something mystical about it. He believes in evolution. He believes that we are here through forces which are based in nature. He was reaching out to see if he could discover the unseen hand behind it all, but he never discovered it. He remained an evolutionist. He remained a humanist all his life. And yet somehow in his reflection, he's reaching out beyond the world of science and space and time and asking probing questions, looking at what is at the heart of human existence. And in some way in his storytelling, certainly for us as believers, when we see this through the eyes of the New Testament, began to touch on it a little bit. This young boy represents not the product of evolution, for there is no compassion in evolution. In fact, if this was a, a real evolutionary person, a person who would believe in evolution, say, all right, you're on the wrong side of this food chain, starfish. It's all supposed to be this way. If you can't make your way back into the water, you're toast, you're over, you're finished, you're weak. That's the blind, pitiless, and merciless policy and philosophy, or the policy that comes out of the philosophy of evolutionary, cold evolutionary, mechanistic view of the universe. You say, Colin, why are you giving us philosophy? I'll tell you why. Because if we're going to engage with our society, it's not just about what people do and what we see them do. We have to look at the reasons that lie beneath the surface. Behind every manifestation of society lies an idea, a thought, something that is based in a belief and ideology. And it's no good remonstrating with our government because they have changed the very definition of marriage and swapped a biblical view of marriage with a secular view of marriage. We've got to ask ourselves, how can we re-engage and bring them into touch with the living God who is bigger, more powerful, and the only one who can give hope? Imagine, friends, this young boy. What, what drove? First of all, this young boy had an ability to reason and think in categories that no mere animal could ever do. Secondly, he had compassion. Lauren Easley actually came to this point himself. He says, man is not as other creatures without the sense of the holy, without compassion. His brain can become a gray stalking horror the divisor of Belson. How interesting. This man in his philosophy saw the fruits, the outcome of the blind, pitiless indifference of the philosophy of Richard Dawkins and others who are ensconced in secularism and atheism. And here's the point for us today. Why would that boy even want to make a difference? Because that boy together with all of us, are not just the product 
the end result of an evolutionary chain. We are people made in the image of God. And the God of compassion has instilled within all of our hearts a natural sense of compassion. And that compassion can be heightened in the rebirth, in the new creation, until it becomes the compassion of Christ, where Jesus' love for the world in giving his life as a ransom for the sins of the world becomes our compassion that we want to reach out, not just to proclaim the gospel and tell them good news, but to engage and show them good news. So, what we ask ourselves, first of all today, when we say, why are we waiting? We say, we're not going to do it on our own. We're not going to leave it to other people. But also, we're not going to settle for half measures. We're not going to settle for half measures. We're going to rise up and fully possess what is ours. And if we were to sketch out what that might mean, I'm specifically directing it into the area of outreach and embracing people who don't yet know Jesus, which to me seems to be the greatest act of love that we could do to reach out to a lost and broken world. But it doesn't begin there, friends. It begins here. There can be no outreach and to allow the Holy Spirit to reach in our lives. And there is a wonderful passage in Proverbs chapter 16, verse 32, reading again from the NLT. Better to be patient than powerful. Hold it right there. Better to be patient than powerful. Very interesting. Just this very morning as I was traveling in, heard a program on the radio in which uh, people were doing an analysis on styles of leadership and various ways in which leadership is being approached differently in these days. I guess it was something to do with the general election. I missed that bit. But a woman said, you know, in all my study and research, I've discovered something. That our culture, our society, is moving away from leadership being a position of power to leadership being all about connecting with people. The Bible told us that a long, long time ago. Better to be patient than powerful. You might have a powerful position. You may be a person of influence. But without that sweet Christ spirit within you producing something delicious on the inside. Your influence through your power is going to not get you very far and certainly not further the purposes of God apart from his gracious overruling. Then the second part of the verse says, better to have self-control than to conquer a city. In the 1980s and 90s and on into the early part of the century, Churches were rising up and saying, we're going to take the city. There was a whole set of songs and hymns written about taking the city, conquering this and conquering that. And, and, you know, one decade goes by and they're still singing, nothing's conquered. Another generation goes by, nothing's conquered. Why? Because it's not just about focusing on that aspect of how the gospel can take over our society. It's more like needing to be, as Jesus told us, to be salt and light And if salt has lost its saltiness, there is no effectiveness. 
to have self-control is better than conquering a city. In fact, the first city you're to conquer is yourself. And God's plan, which we're part, begins with his highest priority is that you and I become to resemble Jesus. So you say we have to have a beard and wear a gown and go for walks on the Sea of Galilee? No. The resemblance has to be from the inside out. Larry Crabb in his spiritual formation teaching says that spiritual formation is experiencing Christ on the inside so that my interior world begins to resemble the interior world of Jesus. Think about that, it's very profound. Because whatever Jesus did, it came from the heart of his sonship. It came out of love for the Father, it came out of passion for the Father. Jesus said, the very food that I eat is to glorify my Father, do what he calls me to do. In fact, the Bible says he never did anything of his own initiative. He was, was totally Father-facing in his focus. And so that means that everything that was going on inside Jesus was excluding everything that was not glorifying to God. And this may sound an impossible thing, a kind of modern form of sinless perfection, but you know, we have Christ living in us. He does the work. The Spirit of God lives in us. So wherever you are in your spiritual journey today, you can take the next step. That's, of course, if you don't settle for half measures. Many years ago, I saw a, a man who came to Christ. I hadn't actually led him to Christ, but I knew him from the very beginning. And he was one of these guys who externally definitely did not look like a Christian. I mean, his clothes were the wrong kind of clothes. He wore tattoos. He, was, he had pins and needles through his nose. I, you know, just pick up, pick up the, whole, the whole, whole kind of story. And when he came to the local Pentecostal assembly, they welcomed him. Yes, they did give them that. But they said, you can't possibly come here next Sunday dressed like that. We want these needles out. We want you looking good. Here's a suit, blue suit, red tie. That's very good. So we got conservative and labor all put together in that one. <laughs> So I'm, I'm certainly not treading on your toes today. And, um, and, and I suppose the Liberal Democrats would have said, stay as you are. But anyway, so he came. And after a week, he had so many people on his case. Oh, are you saved? Yes. Have you received Christ? Yes. Are you sure? Yes. Well, then change. And the change was entirely external. And the tragedy was months later, when we began to speak, he said, I look like them now. I said, yeah, I guess you do, for better or for worse. You look like them. And they said, he said, they've lost interest in me. I said, what do you mean? He said, every time I talk about what's going on in my heart, they said, it's okay, you sit down there, keep hearing the teaching, and you'll be all right. What is this telling us? It's telling us a kind of Christian culture, which is the mean temperature of our spiritual atmosphere, and once we get to that, we stop. Settle for half measures. Back in that day, I'm very, very sure that they were fairly comfortable. The land was theirs. Joshua was still around. Everything was working. And they said, that's fine. We'll stay here for a bit. Because, you know, to go any further means we've got to break down some walls. 
There are some fortified cities. There's still some giants. Joshua, unfortunately, didn't get rid of them all. They're still there, lurking behind those high walls and those fortresses. And it's going to be hard, going to be tough. But here in the field, we can sit, we can rest. Don't settle for harsh, half measures. Where are you in your spiritual journey? How far have you got? Have you settled down somehow? Maybe you've dealt with the easy things. I found in my Christian life when I was born again, there were an amazing number of things that needed to be changed. Some were obvious, some were not so obvious. And in the first little while, maybe the first year, maybe if I'm not exaggerating, the first two years, all this old stuff just fell off. Jesus called, I said, yes, bang, another sin dealt with. Jesus called, wonderful, praise God. All my prayers were answered, everything was fine. But there are other things, maybe it's your story as well, which I gotta tell you, from the very moment I woke up this morning, have to fight. Why is it that some things seem to just fall away and fruit happens and other stuff remains entrenched? There are still some fortresses inside our lives that we've allowed to exist because we have not been persistent enough in breaking them down. So when we are outwardly conforming, we're okay. I don't smoke, I don't chew, I don't go with them that do. Uh, you guys, I heard that from America. I just thought I'd throw it, <laughs> throw it in for you this morning. And yet we can be the most critical, carping, negative, angry, frustrated, unforgiving people, and we can still sing, here I am, Lord, wholly available. <laughs> he says, no way. You're not wholly available. Those strongholds are within you. Don't think they're too big to conquer because the Holy Spirit is your sanctifier. His power knows no limits. There's a woman by the name of Catherine of Siena. She was one of the most acknowledged Catholic spiritual Catholic people in her generation in the 14th century, the late 14th century. She was born of a ruling family in Siena. Amanda and I visited Siena not so long ago. And you know the dust of Siena is exactly the color on your palate if you're an artist. I didn't know that. And the story goes of this woman, she was born in a ruling family, but extraordinarily religious from a very early age, three, four, five, going on long fasts and vigils and claiming great visions and tremendous mystical spirituality. But there came a time, and according to her testimony, God called her out of the cloister to be in a secluded a part of a secluded order, called her out of that onto the streets. And she began to take in the homeless, feed the hungry, challenge the rich and powerful, confronting the ungodliness in the church, in her own city-state of Siena and the nation, one of the most influential people in the spiritual history of Italy. Now, I know that any first-year undergraduate would be able to give a dissertation according to Protestant theology of how wrong she was in her beliefs, but in her practice, how godly, how Christ-like. Told you about her that I might give you one of the sayings of her life. 
She said this, be who God meant you to be. And you will set the world on fire. I'm not just talking about going out there and making a difference in our society. But we are talking to, about beginning in our own hearts as the Holy Spirit takes us over. I want to say to you, be, be the person God intended you to be. That's the recreative power of the Holy Spirit within you. You need Christ in your life for that to happen and you need to surrender to Christ in you. Gospel proclamation. Gospel engagement. And the final thing I want to say to you is, as you say, I'm not going to go for half measures. Go for the full manifestation of God among us. Gospel community. You know, when you think about how far our society has gone, banners, statements, protests, yelling through megaphones ain't going to do it. The only thing that's going to make a difference is if they see Christ in us. I don't just mean us individually, but in us as a community. So instead of saying, David Cameron, you did a huge injustice in changing the definition of marriage from a spiritual one to a secular one, we rebuke you in the name of Jesus. You must have a demon. How far is that going to go? We have to speak up. Yes, I do. I believe that's, that's correct. I believe that. But it's more than telling them, show them. Why don't we invite them into our community and show them how we do marriage together? Show them how we do family. And let the way we do it become the definition of marriage and family for the nation. It can happen. But it can only happen when we rise up to take hold of everything that Jesus has for us. And so gospel preaching, gospel engagement, and gospel community. That's our inheritance. How long will you wait? Well, today we're going to say we're not going to wait any longer. Because we know it's time to make a difference. We're going to rise up and take possession in this generation of all that God has allotted us to do and achieve. Can I have an amen in the house of God? And before I close this morning, it occurs to me that I've been speaking to those who are already in the promised land and encouraging you to lay hold of your possession in the promised land. But you know, there are people today here who are still in Egypt. I've got I to go back to Egypt and say, listen, you've got to get out of Egypt before you can even begin. You've got to get saved before you can even move in the direction of Jesus Christ. To become a follower of Christ means, first of all, you know what it means to have Christ in your life. That you know what it is by faith to say, I recognize that, 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 that you died for me. And that on the cross you carried the judgment that I was due. And, and because of that, I can go free. I can be set free. I can be delivered. I can be saved as 
we describe this. Before you even take one step into your promised inheritance, you need to come out of your bondage and come out of your sin. And I've got good news for you today. That's where it all begins. It began even for the Joshua generation and it begins for every single one of us in our lives. We first must be saved before we can move forward in our life as believers. How can I be saved is the question. Very simple. Remember I spoke about the, the blood of that Passover lamb? They had to smear the blood on the doorposts and the lintels of the houses. And, and when the angel of judgment came, God says, when I see the blood, I'll pass over you. Wouldn't it be amazing to know that there is a way of being protected by the love of God against the consequences of our sins. Isn't it wonderful to know that Jesus has taken that judgment and all that we have to do today is to say, Jesus, by faith, I'm speaking metaphorically, of course, but it's fact, by faith, take that blood and say, thank you, Jesus. I apply it to my life. Jesus died for me. I'm covered by his blood. That's the simple act of faith in which everything Jesus has done for you begins to be effective in your life. And from that moment onwards, you're led by the Holy Spirit into the full and rich inheritance of a life lived for God. I'm going to give you an opportunity today to step into that life. I've, I'm going to do it this way. I've got some gifts to give you today. Uh, a gospel and simple tract that will help you understand the point that you're at right now. And we've got people all over this place, but it's so important that you don't delay. That today, if you've heard God speak to you and you say, I need Christ in my life, I know I need this. Perhaps you've been trying to live the Christian life in your own strength. It doesn't work, as we say in France, Sana Mashapa. Doesn't work. To be a Christian means to be a Christ in person. Not Christ on the outside, but Christ on the inside. And you have to open your heart, put your faith and trust in him. And when you do that, something happens to you. You're changed. You're delivered. You experience the power of Christ through his gospel. If this is what you need, if this is what you want, let's all pray. Eyes closed. Everybody praying. And... I'm going to pray for people today who want to say yes to Jesus. And here's how I'm going to do it. The people here to help you with this. But if you know that, yes, today I want to make my decision. I want to follow Jesus. I'm going to pray for you. My prayer won't be the thing that saves you. It'll be when you open your heart to Christ. But we're going to get to that. So if you say, I'm ready. I want to find out more. I want Christ in my life. I'm going to pray for you. Help me do that. Lift your hand in a moment when I say, and uh, when I see it and somebody sees it, they'll come and stand with you, get ready to give you this, and then we'll just spend a moment or two with you right, right where you are. Are you ready? If you need Christ in your life and you say, this is for me, every head bowed, every eye closed, every Christian praying, in a moment, I'm going to ask you to lift your hand, somebody's going to come to you and stand with you today right here. So if you're saying, I need Christ in my life, I want Christ in my life today, lift your hand now. Thank you, God bless you down here. Thank you. God bless you. Thank you. Yes. Thank you here. 
Could you keep your hand lifted for a moment so people can just come and stand with, with you right where you are? Thank you. God bless you. Thank you over here. Thank you. All over this place. Lifting your hand does not make you a Christian. What you're saying is, I want Christ. And that's, that's the beginning. You desire him. We're going to help you pray that through this morning. Anybody else in this building today, lift your hands high. Downstairs in the lower hall, overflow. And uh, those who are watching on our live stream, I admitted to welcome you earlier. You as watching now, if you're there, you can email us straight away. Every part of the building, everybody under the sound of my voice, if you need this, I'm going to pray for you right now. Thank you. Father, in Jesus' name, I lift up everybody who's lifted their hand as an indication that they want more of you and want to discover who you are. And those who I didn't see in other parts of the building, I pray for them as well. And I ask in Jesus' name that today will be the day when they will understand what it means to cross from death into life by faith in Christ. Pray that it will be a powerful work of your Spirit in their hearts and be with them now as they have this conversation following the service. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen and amen. Let's give Jesus a big praise.